Gratitude That's my everyday What up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Quantum Coffee. So glad you're here. Uh, I think you're really going to enjoy today's episode. It's with my man, Ethan Cross, who is uh, an incredible uh, psychologist, works in uh, University of Michigan's top-ranked psychology department and it's Ross School of Business. And the thing about Ethan that's really cool is he's been tracking this thing we call the conscious mind and learning to control it. You know, that voice in your head that if you've done any type of meditation or self-awareness practices, uh, you start realizing how crazy that voice is. You know, if you haven't actually had an awareness of that voice, then you think you are the voice, which is probably even a worse place to be. So Ethan Cross is one of the world's leading experts on controlling the conscious mind. He's an award-winning professor at the University's Michigan's top-ranked psychology department. Ethan has participated in policy discussions at the White House and has been interviewed about his research on CBS Evening News, Good Morning America, Anderson Cooper, Full Circle, NPR's Morning Edition, all of the things. Been in the New Yorker, Wall Street Journal. Wow, this guy is just really super incredible. And our conversation was amazing. Uh, He has a new book, national bestseller called Chatter. And it's really understanding the voice in our head, why it matters and how to harness it. We have a really good conversation and really excited to share it with all of you. Uh, really appreciate all of you guys for showing up. Love you deeply. Uh, before we jump in, I do want to share uh, really exciting news. We are relaunching the Heart Collective. It's a community I've been building exclusively for elite athletes, but really exciting news. We're opening it up to our wider audience with a inner circle community and we're redoing the entire website. We're redoing all of our content strategy and we're opening it up to people like you. So. Now, if you're not an athlete, you can still join, follow along on the journey and connect with other like-minded people who are on this healing path, really trying to show up and be the best versions of themselves. We still do have the elite athlete community, but we're just starting to scale it up and widen it out so we can reach more people and create community for a wider range of people. We're hosting uh, five retreats next year, a lot of different masterclasses we're putting together, different workshops. Um, So really excited. Go check it out, theheartcollective.com and become an inner circle member. We'd love to have you. Look forward to seeing you on the inside. And with this podcast, Quantum Coffee, uh, part of that strategy is building community around this podcast with a premium community membership. For as little as $7 a month, you can become a member of the community, get access to premium content and extended episodes like me and Ethan Cross on this episode. We jam out for about another 15 minutes. That's going to go just to the inner premium community members of Quantum Coffee. There's a link in the show notes if you feel called to be a part of that. We'd love to have you. And if you don't, a really easy way to support this podcast is to leave a five-star review, say a few nice words. And if something resonates with you, share it with a friend, family. Um, I think this is really powerful stuff that you know is really important. So share it with as many people as you can. And for all of those supporters out there of the podcast, I just can't say thank you enough. Momentum's building. This thing's really starting to take off and really, really enjoying the journey. And I'm excited to go on it with all of you. We'd love to hear from you. Reach out to me on the inner community or Instagram or you know, email me, however you want to contact me. Look forward to hearing from you. Enjoy the episode. Peace. Ethan Cross, how you doing, buddy? I'm great. How are you? I've been looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, I am too. I think we're going to have a lot to talk about. Um, 
let's, you know, maybe you introduce yourself, uh, kind of the work you do to the audience and then we can kind of drop into it. Sure. Um, I'm Ethan Cross. I'm a professor of psychology and management at University of Michigan, Go Blue. And I'm also the author of a book called Chatter, uh, The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters and How to Harness It. And, and that book come, really emerges from a lot of the research we do in my lab here at Michigan, which is called the Emotion and Self-Control Lab. And what we do in the lab is we try to figure out, we've got these things called emotions. And Emotions usually serve us well, except when they don't. And so when emotions are not serving us well, when they seem to be conspiring against us, what can we do to really harness those experiences to regain control of our lives and and perform and think and feel optimally? And so in broad strokes, that's what we do in the lab. And, And the book Chatter is about specifically when we feel our inner voice conspiring against us. When we find our self-talk is running off course, what can we do in those instances to regain control of our self-talk to make Mm. it work for us? Yeah. Oh, wow. I'm so excited to dive into this. I'd love to hear maybe a little bit of background, how you got involved in wanting to study this voice in the head and how it affects our livelihood. Well, uh, I've been studying the voice in our head formally for about 20 years doing research on it. Um, but I've been thinking about it for close to 40 years and I'm not that old. So that means I, I've been thinking about it from a pretty young age. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the origins of this inquiry really begin with my dad in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, when I was beginning around the time that I was three years old, my dad used to, used to talk to me whenever, you know, whenever he, I, anything I'd be upset, he would say the key to getting through feeling bad is to focus your attention inward to try to work through your problems. My dad was an interesting guy. Um, he, uh, on the one hand was like the classic stereotypical Brooklyn dad from the 1980s, big giant bushy mustache, chain smoker, loved watching the Yankees and the giants. And, you know, he, the way he used to drive a car in New York, I, I, I this is true. Like he'd have one hand at 10 o'clock, the other hand would be on the horn, right? Like that's how he would he'd navigate. So he's a pretty, pretty emotional guy. Um, ex- but when he wasn't doing those things, he'd be reading Eastern philosophy and meditating mm. in a lotus position in, in our bedroom and in, in his bedroom in New York. And so he would share his, what he learned with me um, throughout my childhood. And so he told me from a young age, hey, if you're struggling, he'd say, you know, quote, go inside tap into that inner voice, find a solution, move on. And I heeded that advice throughout my childhood and adolescence. When he, when things would happen, a fight with my mom or my, my, my friends, I turn inward. Why did this happen? Come up with a solution and move on. Mm. I did in high school, ask a girl out on a date. She'd say, no, go inside. What are you going to do? Come up with a solution. Ask another girl out. She'd say, no, the process would repeat over and over again. Mm. That was essentially a tool though, for me, Mm. this ability to introspect, tap into that voice. I never really got stuck. Then I went to college and I took my first psych class. And what I learned was a lot of the people, a lot of the time benefited from introspection and tapping into that voice in there, just like I had. But other people in other cases really struggled. 
And sometimes it was the same people who benefited in some instances, but not others, right? They'd go inside, they'd try to tap into that inner voice, come up with a solution to figure out what to do with their, their lives, but they'd end up worrying and ruminating in ways that were truly destructive. And so that for me was a giant puzzle. Why is it that we have this tool, the human mind and the ability to silently use language to work on our problems, the ability to talk to ourselves, right? This is an amazing tool, but it's a very fragile tool. It works for us sometimes, but not others. Why is that? And most importantly, when that tool isn't working for us, when we find ourselves getting stuck in those negative thought loops, which I call chatter, right? You're, you're like a, an ex, a hamster on an exercise wheel. You're running, but not getting anywhere. What can we do to bring those conversations back on track? So I went to graduate school to figure out how to use science to, to answer those questions. And, and that's what I've been doing ever since. Yeah. Wow. Beautiful. Yeah. It's because, I mean, even in like the spiritual community, right? Everybody talks about doing the inner work or going inward to like figure out who you are and that self-awareness, improving that. Like it's such an important part of being human, but I love that you're, I mean, your dad, just a normal dude in New York is like talking about this stuff. And so it, it's, I just love that because it's such a normal thing that is a part of being human. It's not, it's kind of like this and all the mysticism and mystical quotes out there talk about this in different ways as well. Like you have to go inward and know, know thyself, right. And know how you respond to things. And I love that you've decided to really study it in a lab and use science to really kind of create a framework for what this is. And let's talk about like why some people, because I think the big problem is like, is creating that and becoming that observer of the thoughts rather than thinking and identifying with the thoughts. And I think that's the biggest kind of piece to really finding balance within yourself is that initial like awakening of, wow, I am not my thoughts. I am something else observing these thoughts, but it takes a lot to kind of get to that point where you can separate yourself from the thoughts and then you can start working on them. Can you describe kind of that process of the people that are identifying with the thoughts and that ability to kind of become the observer of them? Yeah, happy to. It's interesting. I I recently gave a talk um, at Cornell on some of this work and uh, the the dean there, um, basically after I presented on this idea, which you just so eloquently described, and I'll I'll elaborate on in a minute, Mm -hmm. but he told me about this ancient Chinese proverb, which basically says something to the effect of the route to dealing with any problem is to think about it like an observer, mm. not as the actor. And this was this proverb was like the basis of what military leaders and, and emperors and you know the, the heads of dynasties would would have guide them throughout mm. all of their their tenures. So it's a really fundamental idea. So here's what happens when we experience chatter, when we get stuck in those negative thought loops. We zoom in really narrowly on the situation, tunnel vision. All we're thinking about is the problem we're dealing with. Now, that that can be problematic because when we zoom in so tightly, we then have trouble seeing the bigger picture, which often has solutions to making us feel better and helping us work through the problems. And so what we've learned over the years is that being able to take a step back in those instances to zoom out and think about your experience from a broader perspective can be really, really useful. We call this self-distancing, getting some psychological distance from yourself. Now, contemplative traditions have been talking about this for thousands and thousands of years, and they've developed practices to help people get distance from their experiences, practices like various types of meditation and yoga and structured breathing. 
What has happened recently, which I find really exciting, is really a, a melding of ancient and modern in the sense that science honors the insights that comes from these traditions. But what we've also learned is that there are lots of additional tools that we possess, some of which we use without even knowing it, to gain distance from our experiences, tools that don't involve meditation or, or other kinds of ancient practices, but that are nonetheless really effective. And I find that to be fascinating because what I've learned over the years and when researching my book is that there are tools for managing our chatter all around us waiting to be used, but we often just don't know what those tools are or how they work. And a lot of complexity went into identifying the tools, but most of them are really simple to use. And so if you know what they are, you can be much more deliberate about incorporating them into your life. So let me give you an example of, a, of an easy distancing tool. We call it distance self-talk, and it involves using your own name and the second person pronoun you to coach yourself through a problem. All right, Ethan, how are you going to manage this interview with, uh, with this former opponent of yours in the NFL space, right? Um, joking, of course, but mm -hmm. I, I was a giant fan. I don't know what you think about the Giants. Um, uh, we lost to them in the 2011 playoffs when they went and won the Super Bowl. That's, that was a tough so one. You're, you're not a big fan. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to be a fan of any NFL <laughs> um, team when you played, you know? I like the Bucs yeah, because I, that's I, the last team I played for. Well, they had a big win, big win last night. Uh, I was rooting for that. Um, well, um, so but back to this using pronouns uh, and your name. So when do we use names and other non-first person pronouns? Usually we use those parts of speech when we think about and refer to other people. Now, one of the things we know about human beings is much easier for us to give advice to other people than to follow our own advice. Right? Do as I say, not as I do. This is a very strong phenomenon. Sometimes when we do experiments, we often ask people like to reveal their chatter. What, what's going through your head right now when you're worried or ruminating about something? Sometimes people are ashamed to even admit to us what they're thinking. Mm. And if you ask them, hey, would you ever say this to your best friend? They're horrified at the thought. So they, we, we often talk to ourselves in ways we would never even entertained talking to other people in that way. And so what distance self-talk does is it harnesses, it leverages the structure of language to shift your perspective, to get you to, to, to relate to yourself like you were relating to your best buddy. All right, Ethan, how are you going to manage this really sticky situation? And then I start coaching myself through the problem. That's a distancing tool. It's a tool that many people reflexively use without even being aware of it, I think. So mm -hmm. Julius Caesar used this, um, the, the statesman Henry Adams, LeBron James did this famously in an interview several years ago, Jennifer Lawrence, the actress as well. Um, I would not recommend using this tool out loud when you're walking down a city street. Um, we don't tend to talk to ourselves, let alone the third person that violates social norms, but, mm. but try using this tool silently in your head. Uh, many people report that, that it can help. So that's one super simple, easy thing to use. That's probably my first tool, distancing tool when I'm experiencing chatter. Another really simple distancing tool is something we call temporal distancing or mental time travel. And here the idea is if you're if you're experiencing some adversity, think about how you're going to feel about this 
moment, this experience a day from now, a week from now, a year from now, five years from now. Many of our experiences, not all of them, but many of our experiences tend to be fleeting. They happen and then they go away. And what this temporal distancing does is it makes us, it reminds us of the fleeting nature of our, of our negative experiences. It tells us that, hey, as awful as what you're going through is right now, it's temporary. It'll eventually pass. And that gives people hope, which can really help reroute our, our negative inner dialogues um, mm. and our mood. And so, so I'll do this too. Like I get bad news or something annoys me. All right, Ethan, how are you going to manage it and think through how to do that? And then I'll often think, well, how are you going to feel about it next weekend? And nine times out of 10, I know from all of my experience living in this world that I'm usually going to feel better, like in a few hours, let alone a few days. And that really helps take the edge off that negative moment. And that's really sometimes all we need to do is take the edge off mm-hmm. in order to, to persevere and really thrive. So yeah. those are just a couple of observer tools. Yeah. I use that one quite a bit as well. I always, like, I've been through obviously a lot of challenging experiences and to always know, like, I'll think back to like, okay, a year ago, what was my biggest issue that I was dealing with? And I can't even remember. And so it's like, okay, like these things aren't going to be that big a deal uh, next year. And so it's like, why am I stressing about it so much to show up and like do what needs to be done to get it done? And that can be with anything. Um, what are some other tools that, that people can use? Oh, well, there, there are a lot. Easy ones. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you my toolbox. So in, okay. in 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 chatter, I talk about like close to thirty tools. Mm. And here's the beauty about there being so many tools. I think we often think that there should be like one perfect quick fix tool that helps people across situations. That's not how the human mind works. That's not how controlling our emotions work. Instead, what we've learned is that there are lots of tools out there that we can flexibly draw from. To help us, and I think the 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 more sophisticated our toolbox is, the better. So, like, think about like a carpenter coming to do a job. Like, they've got a really sophisticated like sophisticated is the wrong word. They got a lot of tools in their toolbox. They have multiple toolboxes, and they can you know they have different tools because different situations require different tools, and they know which tools to use. And I think that's how we need to start thinking about this stuff. But um, I'll, I'll give you some more. Um, of my go-to. So, so there are tools you can use on your own. Both of the tools I just talked about fit into that bucket. Then there are people tools and environmental tools. One other tool you can use on your own is, is a ritual. And I'd love to hear about what role rituals have played in your own life, mm. both in sports and after. Um, I, I think of rituals as a, a kind of ancient chatter fighting tool. We have seen them throughout time and, um, we know that when ex- when people experience really difficult emotional events, our culture often gives us rituals to manage those experiences. So think about when we lose someone we love. Cultures around the world give us grieving rituals to engage in, to help us with that experience. What a ritual is, is it is a rigid, structured sequence of behaviors that we engage in the same way every time. The individual elements of the ritual often have no connection to the context that we use as ritual. So take someone like Rafael Nadal, great tennis player. He is famous for 
engaging in rituals on the court. His ritual before he serves is to aggressively pick a wedgie out of his butt, twirl the hair behind his ear, and do a couple other things with his body and then serve. Like picking a wedgie is in no way related to serving the ball. And yet that's part of his ritual. So what you do doesn't have to be connected to the situation. The key is that it's a specific sequence of things we do the same way every time. What research shows happen when we do rituals is rituals give us a sense of control, right? These are things that are under our own control. And that's really important because when we're experiencing chatter, when we're worried, when we're ruminating, we often feel like our thoughts are in, we don't have control of what's happening in our mind. It's taking over. Like I can't stop thinking this way. And and the ritual helps ground us, right? It helps, gives us that sense of agency and control, which compensates for the lack of control we feel when we're mired in, in negative self-talk. So that's another thing you can do. I've got a really corny ritual I do before, like big public speaking events that might get my butterflies going. I'll, I'll listen to some really um, embarrassing 80s pump up music. Uh, I'll say a little mantra, take a few deep breaths, punch my fist into my hand, and then I go do it. And it's great. Closely related to that is, um, is cleaning and organizing. So lots of people, when they're experiencing chatter, they report spontaneously, like organizing their space. Mm-hmm. I do this. I'm not a particularly organized guy in a normal situations. I've got like clothes all over the house. I've got a trail left out after me and books but when I'm when I'm stressed with chatter, everything is nice and neat and tidy. It's mm. the same principle. I'm organizing my surroundings to provide some organization and control to the mm. thoughts in my head. So, so those are like four things you could do on your own um, that I I avail myself of quite a bit. Have, have you used rituals in your life? Yeah, that's beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I mean, what comes to me is like creating sacred space, and it's it's what I do with ceremonies and you know, just like a little ritual we did before we dropped in, I just just asked if we could take a few breaths together because it kind of, it calms our nervous system, but then it sets the tone. I do that before every podcast and it allows us to like calm down together and then drop in. And I found that it just allows for us to just flow into conversation a lot smoother because we're both kind of doing our own yeah. thing energetically. And then we come together, take some breaths and same thing with like meditation, like creating a sacred space in my house where like, you know, it's kind of, and I, I've heard some of my friends, like my bedroom is like no technology in there. It's my safe space that like, if the world outside is going crazy, which obviously it's going crazy because your internal mind is making it crazy because that's our, you know, subjective experience, but to have a space in your house, that's like nothing happens here. This is my still space. You know, we have an altar in our room uh, where we put a few trinkets on there, some crystals. And when I go meditate, like this is a safe space. When I go there, I can let all the chatter fall away. And then I get some clarity and I'm able to work through some of that stuff. So I think setting sacred space is really important and it's, it's a part of ceremony. It's part of ritual. And I think in our society and culture, we've lost a lot of ritual. I think we do a lot of it unconsciously. Like, you know, I think a really big one is like going to a social event and drinking alcohol, right? It's like this ritual, like there's a ritual around drinking alcohol. It's like in the evening, it's to connect. Um, it might be done a little bit unconsciously, but it's not like we're drinking in the morning or anything. It's like this ritual thing. You know, same yeah. with like marriage, like a wedding is this ceremony. And I think we've lost a lot of like ritual process, intentional ritual process throughout our society and our culture. And I think it's showing up collectively because 
there is so much power in setting these ritual processes in a conscious, intentional way. And although we do have a few in our society, I think they're really kind of unconscious and, and not as intentional as they could be. You know, here, here's what gets me so excited about this whole space and why it's so much fun to chat with you uh, about this stuff. Um, so like I've been studying the mind and emotions and how to control emotions for like over 20 years. And until I really dove into the literature on rituals, I didn't really understand their significance for proactively aiding me and others in controlling myself in the world. Like I've been doing, I've been engaging in rituals my whole life. Just like I would argue, I would imagine most listeners have, right? Like our cultures give us rituals, whether they be religious or spiritual or community or family rituals. Like we all have little things, but, but I, I feel like I have just um, stumbled on those rituals. Like some, I was born into some, I, I, I played on little league teams that gave me rituals. I didn't think twice about it. Once you understand how rituals and these other tools work, that gives you the ability to then be so much more deliberate about how to incorporate them into your life. And I think that is really a very valuable um, experience to have because we don't have to just wait then to stumble on something that makes us feel better that we may not even be aware of. We can then harness these things proactively. So I know as soon as the chatter strikes, I've got like four-step plan, boom, 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 to deal with it. And mm. usually it works pretty well for me. So, so that's where I get really excited and geek out about this, mm. um, this stuff. I'd love to get your perspective on, on kind of ritual process or initiatory processes from boyhood to manhood. I know, you know, indigenous cultures and like throughout human history, there is a lot of this kind of transition period for boys to men. And I think, you know, I've talked to one of my mentors talks about this a lot, like one of the big issues with our society and culture and what we're seeing kind of show up in business and politics and all this stuff is we don't have any rites of passage for boys to transition from boyhood to manhood and like really have a ritual where it's like this transition phase. And so what we're seeing is a lot of immature, um, you know, not really connected to their emotions, men walking around in their, in these leadership positions. And it's very, um, narcissistic and it's not, it's not very healed and not very grounded because I, and I think it's related to that, right? There was no, there's not a lot of good models, first of all, in our culture, but I think it relates back to this rites of passage that is missing for us as children into adults. What's your perspective on that? Have you done any studies around that? I think it's fascinating. I mean, so one thing to think about when you think about rituals is rituals are like a, a type of Swiss army knife that do many things for us. Um, just like the inner voice, by the way, uh, the inner voice helps us in lots of ways that are incredible. Rituals do similarly, like on the one hand, rituals can help us deal with chatter by virtue of the fact that they're structured and sequenced and take our attention away from what's bugging us. But they also have social consequences, which I think get at what you're talking about. For example, uh, rituals, especially ones that are done in a social context, often connect us to our broader community, give us a sense of community, and in some cases also like highlight values that are central to those communities. And so I think that's where the boy transitioning to man, you know, role. And like my, interestingly enough, like my culture, I'm Jewish, like we have a very specific and it's a very pivotal ritual 
that we engage in um, uh, to do that. Like, I don't, you know, we don't go and uh, wrestle a lion barehanded or, you know, go out into the Pacific with a spear and, mm. and try to come back, you know, kill a shark. We do something almost as daunting though, which is we have to sing out loud to the community right when we are going through puberty. So right when the voice is at its worst, we've got to be on display in front of everyone. It's a pretty awful experience, but the bar mitzvah, I mean, <laughs> this is what every Jewish boy or many go through. And that, it, that does very clearly mark, hey, you are now transitioning into a new phase of life and you have these responsibilities to yourself, your family, and your community that you now need to start uh, fulfilling. And, and that's that was definitely a pivotal moment in my life and I think in many others as well. And so, um, so yeah, it'd be interesting to think about like what other cultures have those kinds of, of rituals. But I do think you see them popping up in lots of different contexts. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd love to discuss kind of the unconscious mind and the conscious mind. And I've been diving into Carl Jung's work. I don't know if he's a part of the work that you do, but one of my favorite quotes by him is until you make the unconscious conscious, it will run your life and you will call it fate. And, you know, there's, I'm, I'd love to get your perspective on this because you've studied it, but, you know, I've heard like, you know, consciously, we're like conscious of 5% of our, our thoughts, our world, our mind, there's just so much input coming in that we have to be able to filter it out into an experience. But then there's this wide breadth of unconscious material. And a lot of times that voice or those triggers, or, you know, you get cut off on the freeway, how come some person gets really angry and frustrated, but somebody else doesn't? Um, is it because of kind of traumatic experiences or stuff that has happened at a younger age that has shaped the lens in which we view reality and those triggers kind of get stored in the unconscious and they kind of start running our lives emotionally. And until we kind of shine that light of awareness, they talk about the inner work and going inward is to really uncover why am I feeling this way for this situation when it doesn't affect this other person. And that's kind of the work of really making the unconscious patternings and bringing them into the light of awareness. So they don't necessarily control you. Well, um, you know, the unconscious conscious distinction is a fascinating one. And it's certainly the case that much of what happens in our minds is happening outside of awareness. Um, why do we do the things we do? Really interesting question. And um, I don't think we could answer that yet. Um, I think we can say that we know that genes play a role. We also know that early environmental experiences play a role. We could say that with certainty. Interestingly, we've also learned more recently that our genes and experiences in the world, they don't just influence us separately. That was the idea for a very long time. But more recently, what we've learned is that our experiences in the world can actually alter the way our genes impact us through something called gene expression. And so one way to think about this is imagine that you've got a piano inside the cells of your body. And you and I, and most of the other people in this world have a very similar piano in our cells. Like lots of the same keys are there. What really distinguishes us is how that piano is played. And there's an infinite number of ways that those pianos can be played. And our environment, our experiences in the world, the conversations we have with our parents and our friends, the neighborhoods we grow up in, all can impact the way those, those keys are pressed, the songs that we play in our cells, so to speak. That's what we call gene expression. 
And so our environment and genes actually mix. And so those are the building blocks to our experience in the world. We don't really know very well, like why it is that some people are disproportionately affected by early childhood experiences of adversity more than others. There are resilience factors. Um, my, the, the advice that I like to give is to play in the conscious world because that's where we have a lot of control. We don't have a whole lot of control over the unconscious processes that govern us. We do know that by consciously choosing to think in different ways or react in particular situations, you can, with practice over time, change the way you automatically view the world. So in the conscious space, that's where there's the most opportunity to, 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 to change things, to nudge different ways of viewing things along. Mm. Um, and so that's where I think a lot of the opportunity resides. I don't think there's great evidence that spending a lot of time trying to plumb the past to learn something deep about yourself is necessary to help people in the moment. It can be useful at times for some people in certain contexts, but it's not a prerequisite. Um, the, the data don't support that idea. Um, in, I'll, I'll just say one more thing. I'll turn it back to you. There's one really useful distinction that I use in my own life to help me navigate this messy world that we exist with respect to conscious and unconscious. I don't have really good control over the thoughts that pop into my head. And if you asked me, hey, I want you to get better at preventing yourself from experiencing certain kinds of cognitions, like good luck. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know what to do with that. What I can do very well, what I do have a lot of control over is how I engage with those thoughts once they pop up. Mm -hmm. I can accept them. I can dispute them. I can reframe them. I can suppress them. I've got a whole tool set of tools I can use to manage them. That I think for me is really liberating that being aware of that distinction, because what it means is if I experience the dark thought that pops into my head and look, I, like, I think most people in this world on occasion, like there's some ugliness up there. Like I was doing a, a session this morning, an exercise session with, with someone who was, who was kicking my butt. I was telling him like, you don't want, it's a good thing. You don't have a microphone into my inner voice right now. Cause the things I'm saying about you are so ugly that I cannot share them. Right. I can't control those thoughts, but I can control what I do with them. Mm. And, and I, that, that for me is a really powerful lens to organize how I think about my inner, inner world um, mm. that, that I find useful. Yeah. I think that's a very important distinction because we don't and can't control our thoughts, right? They just come into our awareness. But a lot of times when people are untrained with, you know, becoming that observer and like, that's why meditation is such a powerful practice because you can sit and just witness your thoughts. And it's yeah. not about wanting to have better thoughts. It's about not having to attach to the thoughts. And so for me, like a thought can come in and I can see it, not judge it and just let it go. But a lot of times when we identify with our thoughts, a thought comes in, we attach to it, grab it, you know, take it to the end of where it's leading us. And the next thing we know, we're in this emotional triggered state or whatever it is. We don't know how we got there. That's exactly it. And, and I would say further that like meditation, and I've been meditating on and off like my, my wacky dad um, when I was five years old for my birthday, I thought I was getting a new bicycle. Instead, I got a mantra. You know? So <laughs> I've, been, I've been doing that for a while. 
And um, like, it's a valuable tool and accepting a thought and seeing it flow away. That can be, I think of that as a strategy that is very effective, but there are other tools you can use to engage or not engage with your thoughts as well that are out there that people can avail themselves of too. So I think there are lots of of, um, possibilities for how to deal with those thoughts. But I think there's the point that I I, want to come back to is just like, I find in teaching lots of students about this material over the years at Michigan, but also talking to people out in the world about this is a lot of people are really hard on themselves for just experiencing the thought. And, and, you know, based on what I know from the science is like, give yourself a break. If you've got a negative thought that pops in there, you know, we all do at times and it's not about the thoughts that are popping up. It's about what you do with those thoughts once mm. they arise that determine really how you experience the world. Mm. Yeah, I think that's in, in the work that I'm doing and, you know, just trying to navigate and, and figure this whole thing out. I think, you know, what I keep coming back to is, is, is the non-judgment. I think a lot of the problems, like people have so much judgment around the thoughts that are coming up and they keep it internal because they don't want to feel judged for having them. And then they judge themselves for having them. But if you can learn to love all aspects of who you are and not judge, like if you have, you know, you're standing on a cliff after a hike and you have an instance where you're like, man, I just want to push this person off the cliff and you don't know where it came from. Like you love them, but it's just this weird thought of like, what would it be like? And then you feel like, oh shit, why did I have that thought? And then you start judging yourself. You're actually following that thought and letting it take you down into this dark place where if you can just be like, wow, that was interesting. Like, I love this person. Like, I'll just let that one go without attaching to it with judgment. I think that's the key. And that's the kind of the spiritual work side of it that I like look at. It's how can you love all aspects of who you are because you are human and you have this wide breadth of experience and you can actually love those parts without attaching to them. And then honestly, it, it, it gives them less power over you, right? It is liberating. And so how you find freedom internally is to not stop the thoughts, but to let the thoughts go as they come in. Yeah. I I mean, I think I, I completely, so it's, 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 I mean, liberating, I think is the right word because otherwise you're trying to control something that you have no control over, Mm. right? The thoughts that are popping up there, but, but it's, so it's like, being most efficient here. It's like focus your efforts on what you can act on the difference you can actually make Mm -hmm. when it comes to your life. So what's interesting about this whole space though, too, is these concepts that we're talking about, I think are, are central to everyone's experience of the world. Mm -hmm. It's central to our ability to think and perform well. It's central to our ability to have good relationships. It's central to our ability to be healthy, both emotionally and physically. But we don't have like conversations about this stuff all the time when we're growing up or at school. Like schools are only recently becoming interested in incorporating these kinds of ideas into their curricula. By far, the majority of schools still don't. And so I find it fascinating that we've come this far as as a culture, but have yet to really shine a spotlight on Hey, here are the mechanics that govern emotions and the human mind. Like we teach kids about things that we think are going to be useful for helping them live a good life. That's part of what goes into like the, 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 the canon of, of the courses we teach. We teach math because we think you got to know 
how to compute a percentage and do other mathematical problems to really be successful in this world. We teach English because you should be able to write a paper and communicate and so forth. Like, but we don't teach about emotions and how mm-hmm. they work. And so, um, so I think that's a, I think that's a big, um, there's a negative way to look at it or a positive. I, I like to be more positive. I think there's a huge opportunity here for all of us to start talking about these kinds of processes and skills because they have the potential, I think, to really help people and help our culture in ways that we could all benefit from. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's a little, a little soapboxy, I guess. But yeah. I say it all the time. I find it fascinating. Like as a human adult, the two most important things I've found to actually interact with the reality that we've created is emotional intelligence and financial literacy. Both I didn't learn in school and we don't teach in school, which I find is very interesting um, how people can't really see that there's all this stuff that you mean, yeah, it's beneficial, but like emotional intelligence and financial literacy, if you, if you don't have those two things, you're not gonna be able to interact with reality in any type of healthy way and actually be able to find success in any kind of environment that we've created. So I appreciate you sharing that. Um, interestingly enough that, and they're related too, because if you can't manage your emotions, you may get in trouble in some financial problems. Um, so, uh, so that it's very interesting. yeah, completely agree. Um, I'd love to talk and, and stick with me here because I've kind of come to this conclusion myself, but since you kind of study this stuff in the lab, I'd love to get your perspective on it. You know, we're talking about kind of the, making the unconscious conscious. Um, you know, it seems like it's a matter of perspective. You talked about like environment shaping your reality. And, you know, I think and this is what I've just, just observed, you know, people that kind of go grow up in their hometown and they don't necessarily ever leave their hometown. They're around the same friends, same family. So they're not actually widening their perspective of reality. They're around the same people with the same belief structures and they're not really exploring. And I think what it comes down to is getting outside your comfort zone. And if you can push the outside your comfort zone, whether it's travel, whether it's novel experiences, whether it's reading books, whether it's meditating, all these different things that, you know, in my experience, they, they actually, and I love, this is the part I'd love to get your perspective on is, you know, you're talking about neuroscience, neuroplasticity, neurogenesis, like new novel experiences have shown to create new neural connections in the brain, which at the same time is widening your perspective of reality. Because as your physiological brain, new neural connections get, you can actually access different perspectives and widen your kind of consciousness into a wider perspective, which gives you more compassion for others and be able to see different sides of things. Um, so I'd love to get your perspective on that. Like, is it, cause I've always talked about like, on the other side of fear lies freedom is like a tagline that I've like really come to love and, you know, to face your fear is to get outside your comfort zone. And so the growth that we're all looking for is to keep pushing the boundary of what you feel comfortable doing. And I'm not saying go do something that frightens the shit out of you, but slowly just get more uncomfortable. If you can widen that comfort zone at the same time, you're expanding your neural pathways, creating a wider consciousness how does that show up? Have you done anything as far as like the neuroscience with this kind of kind of evolving uh, your consciousness and become having more awareness? Well, um, so the the work that we've done that's closest is on wisdom. We've done a lot of work to understand how you can make people wiser. So, what is wisdom? Um, it's a term that's often thrown around without definition. Some people think it's the same thing as intelligence. It's not um, the way that we. formally define wisdom is the ability to successfully navigate the dilemmas of social life, right? Like, so how do you, we're social creatures, how do you get through this world effectively? 
And there are a couple of core features of wisdom are um, intellectual humility, so recognizing the limits of your own knowledge, um, um, but also like perspective broadening, like realize that realizing that the world is constantly changing, things are constantly in flux, taking on other people's perspectives. That's all about broadening your perspective, and that's what I think connects to what you've been you were just describing, right? So giving yourself opportunities to broaden your perspective is really important. Um, there's research which shows that as we get older, we we tend to get wiser. Why is that? Well, one thought is, well, we've had more opportunities to have different kinds of experiences, both our own experiences dealing with problems, but like seeing how other people have dealt with them. So our, our perspective is so much broader and that allows us to make more informed judgments that are ultimately wiser. So I guess that's one way um, it connects to what you're talking about. The, the other thing that I would just comment on is the fear issue and how I like this phrase on the other side of, side of fear is freedom. I think fear and lots of other negative emotions get a bad rap, right? A lot of people think that the key is to try to rid yourself of you know, what we might call the toxic trinity, right? Anger, sadness, fear. We want to live lives without it. We just want to be happy, joyous, full of pride and all those other positive states. What that perspective misses is the fundamental insight that emotions, all of them are useful in the appropriate doses. We evolve the capacity to experience positive and negative emotions for a reason. Fear can be a really useful response. What a fear when we experience fear, what that tells us is there's potential potential danger in the environment. When there's potential danger, that doesn't mean you always have to run away. Sometimes, to achieve greatness, you've got to deal with the potential danger effectively and work through it. And that I think that's why you hear so many um, successful people talk about if you don't. If you don't face your fears, like you're never going to achieve, right? Because achieving all, often requires going into the unknown and the unknown is often characterized by danger and threat. Mm -hmm. And so, so I think the more we can reframe how we think about negative emotions in the first place, like the better anxiety in small doses, super duper useful. I will tell you that um, I do a lot of public speaking and there have been a few instances, low stakes events where I experienced no, no anxiety at all. No, no butterflies in my stomach. Those, those events, the totally inconsequential events, those are the ones where I think I probably, I, I did the worst, right? The big ones with thousands of people where I feel those little butterflies, I'm a little, I got to do my ritual. That's where I'm killing it. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and that's because we know that a little bit of anxiety actually enhances performance over and above not experiencing at all. The same is true for all negative emotions. And so, mm. so I think embracing that can also be really liberating. Like mm. now I know, like I got a little anxiety. All right. That's my body doing what it's supposed to be doing mm. to help me in this situation. Yeah. I love it. It makes you feel alive, right? If we didn't have those emotions, like what would be the point of living? It's like that that, that low level anxiety is like, okay, I'm doing something outside my comfort zone. This is exciting. And it's, it's like reframing it. I, I have a huge fear around public speaking. And, and a big piece of that has been like, when I feel that anxiety, 
identify it with this deep fear. And I start going down this rabbit hole of like, I'm going to screw up. And that story I attach to those thoughts because the emotions and the, and the thoughts are kind of tied together, but being able to reframe it and be like, oh, this is exciting. I'm excited to do this. this is a great opportunity. It doesn't mess with the feeling at all, but it allows me to use the feeling to go and show up and feel alive and like, you know, love that experience and be able to fully feel it for what it is and not create thoughts around it. That's to- totally it. And so like, you know, there's research that speaks directly to this. So telling people before they have to give a public speech, um, re- you know, think about your anxiety as your body. Like this is, this is a, a challenge that you can do. Like your body's doing what it's supposed to do, not a sign of threat. This is a sign of weight. I'm, I'm, I'm in exactly the place I want to be. My body's responding properly. And then give yourself advice. Like you give your buddy, Hey, what would you tell me if I had this big talk? You probably say things to me like, Ethan, you've given literally hundreds of talks and they've never, not once has it tanked. So you're going to kill it. Go for it. Like, that's what you then say to yourself using your name. Right. So like that one, two punch can be very, very useful. That's my, that's what I do before. Absolutely. And I think another point is I think as, especially as men in our society and culture, we haven't really been modeled on how to fully connect with our emotions, right. And fully feel them. We've always been told, like, especially like crying, like, you know, big boys don't cry, men don't cry. And I think this is, comes down to the emotional intelligence piece, especially with men. I think women are a lot more connected to their emotions. And what I found in the work that I do is we, we as men tend to intellectualize our feelings and create stories around what we're feeling. And, and we have a lot of trouble connecting with them. And I think, part of what you're saying is it's, it's not the negative emotions aren't a bad thing, but being able to understand when you're feeling something and to fully feel them in the moment and express them in a healthy way. You know, and I think a big part of that is talk about is sacred space and feeling safe to with a, whether a partner or a friend where you feel safe to really process what you're feeling going through can actually move that energy out of your body. But if you don't actually healthily process it in the time, then you suppress it. And then it usually comes out in unhealthy ways later on because it's just the energy is still sitting in there. Yeah. Well, I think you want to work, figure out ways if, if the emotions are in there and they're counterproductive, you know, you want to find ways of reframing those emotions so you can move on essentially. And what's interesting is, um, you know, like there are of course gender differences out there, but there's also a lot of commonalities that characterize men and women when it comes to our emotional lives. For example, there's a stereotype that women like to talk more about their, their chatter than men. Actually, if you look at the data, men and women are equally motivated to, to talk, to, to get, to express their emotions, to get it out mm. when they're really struggling with something negative. And, you know, it, it does a disservice to one gender if we assume that, hey, no, you know, that gender, men in this case, like they don't need to talk to anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, we, be, we have basic needs um, to work through these feelings. And so that's, that's characteristic of both of us. And so some of those gender stereotypes can be counterproductive. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, Let's talk about, because you're studying consciousness, the conscious mind, talked a little bit about the unconscious. When studying consciousness, how did, where does like spirituality come into the equation? I know you're familiar with some Eastern philosophy and, you know, talking about the chatter and, you know, kind of the mind, body, and spirit. And we talk about the mind and the thoughts, obviously the physical body connecting with that, but where's this spirit side, this energy that 
kind of permeates this whole existence. What are your thoughts on that? And has anything come up in the lab to help you kind of identify it with the science part of it? Well, you know, we, um, so I would say in terms of the science and much of the science that's been happening lately, what um, I think what you see is a, a movement to try to use the tools of science to understand how the mind works and how many contemplative traditions work as well. And so, um, you know, using neuroscience tools like fMRI and EEG to see, well, what's happening in the brain when, when you're experiencing an emotional outburst or regulating it with meditation or any other number of techniques. So there's a lot of that basic what I call mind mechanics work that is happening right now. Like scientists who have some basic awareness of how the brain works and how the brain gives rise to how the mind works, trying to tinker away to figure out more deeply, okay, well, this is what an emotion is at the brain level. And this is how, you know, these are the tools and the networks that control it. Spirituality. there are some people who are studying like peak experiences, um, um, and trying to see like what their neural signature is. Uh, I think most scientists um, in the mainstream would probably suggest that spiritual experiences are an emergent property of the, of the brain, which of course is integrated with the body too. But the idea is that, you know, if, if you're talking about like having some kind of self-actualization or some sense of connection with a broader being that you should be able to see some trace of that at at the brain level. Now um, we get into thornier ground when we start talking about spiritual agents, supernatural forces, God, et cetera. Um, I think a lot of the science is is just totally silent on those issues um, with, you know, you probably have plenty of people who don't believe in those concepts. Um, Other folks who, um, recognize that the tools we have to measure things are limited. Like tools are getting better all the time and we can only work with the neuroscience tools that we have. But we're, I think we're seeing like an embrace. Like when I started, when I was in graduate school over 20 years ago, I mean, meditation, mindfulness was very, very fringy. Now it has emerged as a huge area of study with like rigorous cutting edge research published in the most prestigious scientific journals you can imagine. So I think we are seeing a shift more recently. Now we see psychedelics emerging into mainstream uh, neuroscience and psychological research. So I think there is like an expanding view of what scientists should be studying in this space. And I think that's a good thing, especially when you consider a, how long, these spiritual and, you know, religious traditions have been around, um, be the role they play in people's lives and see the number of people who, um, who embrace religion and spirituality. It's a huge, huge segment of the population. And so if you care about understanding human nature and how the brain is, gives rise to that human nature, like, we really should be studying this stuff. Mm. Yeah. I think it's a big part of finding real purpose, real fulfillment in life is to understand and, and, and the terminology you use or whatever, you know, kind of framework you use, but to understand there is something greater than the self greater than the I. And that's kind of what we're talking about with this. 
becoming the observer of your thoughts. Like you are not your thoughts, like the ego construct and personality story that you're telling yourself, you can actually change that story internally by having an awareness. So then like, who are you? What, what is that story of who you are? What is the thing that is greater than the self that kind of permeates this, this whole existence and however you frame that up and whatever terminology or belief structure you do. But I truly believe that it's a necessity to find real fulfillment and groundedness and balance within yourself is to find out what that means to you. What is the thing that is greater than the self and connect with it? And whether that's nature, whether it's God, whether it's a religion, it's really just understanding like there is a bigger something out there in this universe than just me. I think that's a big part of really finding this, this balance that we're talking about. Yeah. I I talk about this in my book um, on, on this gets to like environmental and cultural tools for managing chatter. And there are a lot of tools that exist in those spaces. For example, uh, interacting with nature, like green spaces provides us with lots of opportunities to help us deal with chatter. And one of the ways it does so is it provides us with opportunities to experience the emotion of awe. Awe is an emotion we experience when we're in the presence of something vast and indescribable, an amazing sunset, uh, like an awesome mountainscape. And, and what happens when we experience awe is we feel smaller. There's what we call shrinking of the self. Like when you are contemplating something vast and like the universe or this beauty, you feel smaller. When you feel smaller, so do your, your so does your chatter. And that can be really, really good for us. So, um, so yeah, there's a lot, I mean, religious experience also often provides us with that, that sense of a shrinking self, right? Like there's this God or energy that's out there. It's greater than all of us. We're just a piece of it. That is a powerful way of putting things in perspective, you know, feeling smaller. We often associate it with feeling bad, but sometimes feeling smaller and feeling like you're a piece of something larger can be really good for you as well. And, and that's what we're learning is true. Mm. I'd love to um, kind of final question and we can wrap it up. I'd love to get your perspective on, you know, just the psychological point of view with what's going on collectively. And I've heard, you know, this term mass psychosis, but it just seems like, and I think the internet is like leading to all, like all of these, it's like really hard to discern what's true, what's not true, everything that's going on collectively and this idea of, you know, people getting lost and losing themselves. You know, there's so much distraction with technology, our busy lives, we're disconnected from nature. Like all of these problems that we're facing as a society and as a world are so new to the human experience that I think collectively don't, we don't know how to handle it. And I think important part of the work moving forward is kind of coming back to self and doing this inner work. But I'd love to get your perspective on like what's happening collectively and how we move through this, what seems like a massive transition that's happening you can say consciously, you can say spiritually, you can say just collectively, societally, politically. It seems like there's a lot of shifts taking place. Um, so how do people navigate this when it's so hard to understand what's happening? Well, I think, you know, first of all, I think we are certainly living through a technological revolution and it's a technological revolution that has a, a pandemic, you know, permeating around it. So these aren't easy times. Having said that, um, I actually think we're doing okay. Um, so, you know, the latest statistics, for example, on, on, on anxiety and depression in the States where, where we, we saw over the course of the pandemic, an increase, a significant increase. I think it went from like 10 to 30%. That's a big number of people who are suffering that we want to help. 
But there's also a silver lining there, which is 70% of people are doing okay. And I think that's also something that we need to remind ourselves um, of. We have experienced technological revolutions before. I mean, this is actually an instance where I think perspective broadening can be so helpful because when you when you tune into the media, social media, regular media, there is this negativity bias. And, and there's that's a whole other show for us to talk about mm-hmm. why that is the case. But there's so much negative information we're bombarded with. I think it's important to, 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 to like broaden out and realize, hey, we have dealt with these kinds of um, technological um, advancements before. And we've developed, we've dealt with pandemics before, and we've made it through. I mean, if you think about the Enlightenment or the, the printing press, I mean, these were huge spikes on the technology timeline. We didn't just make it through those. We've continued to progress linearly in a positive manner. And I would bet a lot of something mm-hmm. um, that we will continue to do so. Um, where is the, is there room to make things better? Absolutely. That is one of the big reasons why I chose to write Chatter, because I think one of the keys to helping people navigate this turbulence is to give them science-based tools that they can use to manage their inner mental life. Give them the tools and also point out the myths that exist in this space, because there are also like lots of ideas that have been passed down from generation to generation in our culture about things that we think should help us, but that actually don't, and that can actually harm us. And so that's the other side of what I talk about in chatter. What are those myths? For example, venting your emotions, venting your emotions on its own doesn't help you work through your chatter. Really good for connecting people, but doesn't provide you with a panacea when it comes to your turbulent inner voice. Mm-hmm. So, so that's where I think that's like the, the horse I'm betting on here is how can you help the most people in the most significant way? I think it is by, by giving them tools to manage their inner life. And, um, and so that's why, you know, I'm always excited to chat with folks about, about mm-hmm how that might look. Yeah. Interesting times for sure. And we're going to talk more about those myths and some more tools. And we're going to ask Ethan what his secret to the universe is in the extended episode. So all you premium members stick around. If you're not a premium member, you can go to Supercast and uh, there's a link in the show notes. Uh, I think it's $7 a month. You can support this podcast financially, help me grow it and get access to premium content like this extended episode. Um, if you don't feel called to support the podcast in that way, you can support the podcast by leaving a five-star review that goes a long way in helping, uh, build this podcast as well. Ethan, thank you so much for taking the time for sharing your wisdom and for doing the work you do, man. I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. Really fun to be here. 